You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm chapter 118, verses 19 through 29. Psalm 118, 19 through 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, that the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who, who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would see Jesus. Not our imaginings of who he is, not our wishful thinking about what we think he should be like, but we would see him. We would hear him. We would know him. We would worship 
him. We would obey him. So God, I pray now that by your spirit, we would see and listen to and believe your word. And in doing so, we would see and listen to believe in Jesus. His name and only in his name we pray. Amen. When you go for a hike, there's a number of different things to be aware of. First, you should be aware of the weather. Family and I, a few years ago, were up in Glacier National Park. We were there for a total of three days, two and a half days, really. So we had one good day to get a hike in. So we said we were going to hike on Tuesday. The problem was so no one checked the weather on Tuesday, and on Tuesday, it rained. There was a lot of rain. So we should have checked the weather. You need to be aware of the weather. And two, I did a bunch of research, found the trail. This was going to be a great trail. It's a trail that was going to take us up through a valley onto a ridge line, and we were going to be able to see for miles in every direction the beauty of the mountains and the valleys and the glacial lakes of Glacier National Park. It was going to be amazing. Now, the problem is, is it required several thousand feet of climbing in just very short distance. So it's very important not only to keep track of the weather, but to keep track of the trail that you're going to hike. Very important. We're going on the trail. There have been numerous signs, even a sign at the entrance shack into Glacier National Park saying, watch out for bears, and by the way, have you seen this person? Two of those two things together reminds us, and my wife, taking this to heart, had a large canister of Tic Tacs, the orange Tic Tacs, and anywhere we hiked on this trail in the rain, going up several thousand feet in order to get to a ridgeline, she would shake the Tic Tacs, keep the bears away. So it's important that you understand both the weather, you understand the trail that you're going to be taking, both in its directional and its elevational changes. It's also important you're aware of animals that would eat you and kill you and drag you into a cave. So it's important that you keep all of these things in mind. And oftentimes we can get preoccupied with one or more of them. I like maps. And so it's fun to get a map in front of you and map out the trail. My wife really likes not being eaten by bears. And so she is preoccupied with not being eaten by animals. It's like the fun part of hiking for her. And then three... Some of you like weather, and you're weird, but you like weather, and so you study the charts and the things, and um, you like weather. But, but here's the deal about hiking. You don't go on a hike because of the map. You don't go on a hike merely to avoid being eaten by a bear. A lot of easier ways to avoid being eaten by a bear. Um, you, you don't go for a hike to, to better study weather. You go on a hike, or at least you should go on a hike for the view, to see something. And why all of those side issues are important, they're vital. You really, really do need to keep track of the weather. You really need to know where you're going, um, and you really should avoid whatever animals happen to be around who will kill you and drag you off into a cave and eat you. Um, all of those things are vital. They're important. You should keep track of them. Um, what you must never lose sight of is what you must See. And so if you go to Glacier National Park and you happen to go on this trail, I forget the name of it, I'll tell you. If you ask me, I'll look it up. You, you go to get to the ridge line to see. And the Christian life and Christian worship is like that. It really matters that you gather and worship and not get eaten by a bear. That didn't come out, like there's no bears here. But like the, you, you gather in worship and you pursue holiness. You seek to worship God in the ways that he's commanded us to worship him. Um, it, it, it really, really matters that you raise children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It, it really, really matters that you learn um, the, the kind of posture that we're supposed to have towards one another. Um, being gracious to one another, forgiving one another, being kind to one another. Um, it, it really, really matters in marriage that you understand what in the world this thing is. Um, that, 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 that marriage is um, this picture, that this, this beautiful dis, d, d, 
display of the love of Christ for his church and the responsiveness of the church to Christ. Um, and, and you learn how to navigate marriage in line with everything that the Bible says. All of these things matter. They matter greatly. Um, but don't miss the point. The point is that we would see, that we would communion with, that we would know and abide in Christ. You see, you and I were made to behold God, to see him as he is, to be transformed by him. I mean, this is one of the marvels of scripture and the marvels of everyday human life is that all of these things, this is the thing that blows me away about, about marriage. Like you, you enter into this, this covenant with another human being and it's insane. You make promises about a lifetime that you have no idea what's going to happen and you stand in front of your family and friends and God and, and, and swear that you're not going to leave. That you're going to hold fast to promises made on that day. Do you know how insane that is? You're about to get married. That's insane. <laughs> but here's the marvel of it. Do you know why marriage exists? Oh, that you would see the love of Christ for his bride. The nature of that love, the insanity of that love, the glory of that love. You see, this world and everything in it, all the obedience and the glory and the joy that God has called us to walk in, all the difficulties that he's, um, that he has commissioned for us in this life are given to you by God that you might see him and marvel at him. One of the, one of the patterns that you find unfolding in the book of Acts um, if you were to go to the book of Acts, um, as the church is expanding, um, as the gospel is being pre- preached um, where it's not preached um, so that Christ would be known and worshipped where he's not worshipped and known, this pattern unfolds um, in which two things happen everywhere the apostles go. A great deal of work is done to unveil, to kind of put on display the majesty, the authority, the identity of Jesus. And then two, to warn of impending judgment. So so here's what I want us to do for the next three weeks. So this Sunday, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. But we're going to turn to each of the Gospels, beginning today with Mark. And we're not going to be preoccupied with the weather or the bears but we're not going to do, um, pay, pay attention to all the rocks in the trail. We're not going to um, look at a map to kind of get all of the elevation gain and all of that stuff. Um, no, we are going to fix our attention on seeing Jesus. Just beholding him again. You see, my prayer for us is that we would learn to marvel at him. Do you know that he's fascinating? Do you know that he's terrifying? Do you know that whatever squishy images of Jesus, there is, in fact, um, a kind of historic pattern that unfolds in the history of the church um, of remaking, refashioning Jesus into whatever superhuman picture we want. So we take certain traits that are valued within a culture, and then we kind of, um, uh, we, we project them onto Jesus, and we kind of ramp them up times 10, because after all, he's God. Um, and so he becomes kind of the perfect image of um, whatever our idea, our culture's idea of the perfect human is. And, and in doing so, and we, we continue to do that in our day, we forget the absolute strangeness of Jesus. We're no longer shocked by him. We're no longer offended by him. We're no longer terrified of him. So my prayer for us is that there would be a renewed sense of strangeness. A renewed sense of terror. A renewed sense of love and delight and marveling. All mixed together. As we encounter Jesus as he is rather than as we portray him to be or think he ought to be.
And then here's the thing, the last bit by way of introduction. Our only access to Jesus is found in this book. There's nowhere else you can go. Like if you want to have fellowship or a communion with Jesus, like you, there's nowhere else to go but here. If you want to know what he's like, there's nowhere else to go but here. If you want to hear what he commands, there's nowhere else to go but here. If you want to understand what he promises, there's nowhere else to go but here. If you want to understand what he warns, there's nowhere else to go but here. In other words, there's no kind of secret hidden behind some, um, behind some wall that you might be able to navigate um, through this text to get to. Um, there's not some sort of internal mood or moment or voice that you can find inside your heart in order to find out who he is. Um, we must go to this book. Isn't that wonderful? Because otherwise, it's just up to you. It's up to your, what was on the pizza you ate last night? Did you take your meds too late in the day and had weird dreams as a result? Like God has spoken to us and he's intended and and, and providentially provided that it would be written down for us so that we can all look at it and see it. So if you want to know Jesus, and that's what I want, that we would know Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, if you want to have fellowship and communion with Jesus, we have to go to this book. So for the next four weeks, we're going to go through all four Gospels and look particularly focusing in on the final week of Jesus' life, but also allowing the, the, that whole Gospel writer and their particular emphasis to inform and set for us a vision of Jesus Christ. And so um, we are going to walk through three passages in Mark and then land here in chapter 11 and see what it has to say to us which means that I have five sermons to preach for you today. Let's go. All right. You'll flip over to Mark chapter 1. Three texts from Mark that kind of help us to understand how is is Mark instructing us? How is God, through Mark, instructing us to see, hear, and marvel at the person of Jesus? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 15. This is kind of the, the heading for Mark. This is the trajectory that Mark wants us to go. So Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the gospel. This becomes the heading over which everything else Mark does. And so I want us to see a couple of things that are going to help us better see Jesus in chapter 11. First, Jesus says, announces, the time is fulfilled. Something has happened before. That time then has reached its end. It's been filled up. It's matured. So now something new has come about. Something new has appeared. And what is that thing? It is the kingdom of God. God's established reign. His kingship over all things. And then there's this phrase, which is really, really important if you're going to study Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. I love this. Jesus shows up and announces, the time is fulfilled. Kingdom of God is standing right in front of you. See it? In other words, this phrase is at hand doesn't mean it's coming. It's not a historic reference. It's a geographical one. 
who stands in front of a room full of people and he says, the kingdom, the time is fulfilled. Everything you've been waiting for has happened. Time has matured enough and now the rule and the reign of God over all things, his establishment of righteousness and justice and holiness is standing in front of you. So, so if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to fix your gaze and your attention and you must pay close attention. Jesus, when he said this. If you want to see what the rule and the reign, the establishment of holiness and justice and righteousness looks like, you must look at Jesus. You don't have access to it anywhere else. So repent of your sins and believe this good news. The good news he just announced. The kingdom of God is standing in front of you. Not me, but Jesus. So Mark establishes, he instructs us, not not just in, in what Jesus' historic message was, he actually instructs us here on how to read the gospel. How do we read the book of Mark? Like when you open it tomorrow, because you will, I know. When you open the book of Mark, what, how do you read it? Mark gives us instructions right here, right in the first chapter. You should be utterly preoccupied with the character, the person, the work of Jesus. This appears a couple of different times. The second text actually illumines this really, really well. Um, actually, I'm going to go to the third one because it illuminates it better. I'm in Mark chapter 6. Um, the, the disciples are in a boat. There's a storm. Um, and uh, this is actually a reoccurring theme in Mark. There's always like a boat and a storm and then Jesus doing wonderful things. I mean, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is walking to them on the water. You know this story? Jesus walks on water. It says he intends to pass them by, which is an interesting phrase. Um, and the reason why that phrase is interesting, it points us back to um, Job chapter 9. In Job chapter 9, um, God is, Yahweh is described as the one who walks on the water and people don't see who he is. They're, um, they're oblivious to, his, to, to who it is that's walking, walking before them in the water, on the waves, in the storm. So, so um, Mark kind of tags that text by, um, by using this phrase, he intended to pass by them. There's also something else that's unique about Mark 6, especially when you compare it um, to the same story in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, does anybody know what happens in the book of Matthew? It's, I shouldn't ask rhetorical questions. Um, in the book of Matthew, when Jesus comes walking on the water, Peter gets out of the boat and goes to meet him. And so in the book of Matthew, you're first looking at Jesus and then Matthew draws your attention to Peter and Peter's faith or lack of faith in getting out and walking towards Jesus. Mark doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us anything about Peter, which maybe Mark had a grudge against Peter. like didn't want people to know about Peter walking on water. But if like I was with Derek and he got out and started walking on water towards Jesus, I would mention that. Seems like a big part of the story, right? But Mark doesn't tell us that detail. And we have a number of reasons to believe that Mark is actually um, getting a lot of these stories from Peter himself. Why doesn't he tell us that? Because he doesn't want your attention turned away from Jesus, even for a moment. See, Mark is preoccupied with fixing our gaze on Christ, on asking questions about who is this? What, what is he doing? What is happening? Is the kingdom of God standing in a person? What on earth is this? So as he tells the story in Mark chapter 6 of Jesus walking on the water, um, he, he tags it, he, he tips his hat and says, says a phrase that, that that's really points us directly to Job where there are waves and there is a storm and there is God himself walking on the water unrecognized. So 
Mark draws us to no, 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 stare at this Christ. Don't miss it. Don't fail to recognize who it is that's walking on the water in front of you. And there's Mark chapter four. Jesus is in a boat and there's another storm. The disciples freaking out. Wake him up, shake him. He stands up and he commands the waves to stop. He commands the wind to stop. Commands the storm to stop. And the exact same phrase is used, alluding back, pointing us back to Psalm 107. Where uh, the, the Psalm 107 is this kind of, uh, this theme is brought up over and over again. So you have this, those who are um, lost in the desert. You have those who were, um, they were plagued by their own sins. And then you also have this um, wonderful stanza in the middle of Psalm 107. Um, I think it'd be a really fun psalm to sing. Um, that those who, who uh, looked at their lives in their hands as, um, as they get getting sick, as they're seeing their very death, as they're on the waves and the waves are crashing and the storm is destroying them. And it says that God saved them. How did he save them? By speaking and the waves and the winds obeyed him. So Mark says, right here in front of you is the kingdom of God. If you're looking for the kingdom of God, um, look at Jesus. If you want to read this gospel, what should you look for? Man, I want to see and understand who this Jesus is. And Mark says, look closely, listen carefully, fix your attention here. And when you get to Mark chapter four, what does he want you to see? The psalm that's been sung for generations about the God who saves his covenant people. How? By speaking and calming the wind and the waves. This God is asleep in a boat in the middle of the storm. Look at Jesus. You are beholding this God, this covenant God, this God who controls and speaks the whole world into existence, who commands the winds and the waves, who who walks on water, passing by his people unrecognized. Um, The the, the God who comes and declares and says, um, the kingdom is not some extension of my work. I myself come to establish it. Which then brings us to Mark chapter 11. We're going to take, take this text and split it in two. So you have verses 1 through 11. This is oftentimes how Mark will tell his stories. Um, Mark uh, 1 through 11 first is beginning to uh, kind of unfold for us this idea that we found all the way back in Mark chapter 1, the coming, the arrival of the king. And so it's going to be asking the question, who is this one? Who, who is this Jesus? And then we have what's called a Markan sandwich. This is key to reading Mark. He loves sandwiches. I have a friend who's been very bored the last few months. He daily sends me, literally just sends me pictures of sandwiches. His name is not Mark, but Mark is like that. He loves sandwiches. So Mark will tell a story, and he'll split the story in two, and he'll stick another story right in the middle of it. And that the middle story is explained by the bread. Does that make sense? So in verses 12 to 26, you have a sandwich. He tells the story about the fig tree, splits it, and he sticks right in the middle, Jesus cleansing the temple. So the way Mark and sandwiches work is you look at Jesus cleansing the temple and you go, what does that mean? Mark says, eat your bread. Don't tear the crust off. Leave the bread intact and eat the bread. And what you find is this story about a fig tree. So that sandwich is going to answer for the question, answer the question, this one that we've just seen, it's been revealed to us in 11, 1 through 11. What does he do? So that's 
how we're going to break it up. So let's begin with the triumphal entry. Um, this is the season of Passover. And so I want to get a couple of things in front of you in terms of context of what's going on. First, um, you have here uh, in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, th- th- there are multiple festivals held during the year. Um, Passover was probably considered the biggest one, the one you needed to go back to Jerusalem for. Um, although uh, the Feast of Booths was also very popular, mostly because it was more fun. Um, but the, the, the Passover, um, they would estimate, so the rough estimates are that Jerusalem probably had about 50,000 residents at the time. During Passover, between 50 and 100,000 people would come to this town of 50,000. Think about that for a second. Between 50 and 100,000 people, so it would either double in size or triple in size for this festival. They would travel to Jerusalem remembering the Passover meal, um, remember to celebrate the Passover meal, to remember the past work of God at the first Passover, to pray for and to anticipate and to long for a second Passover. What's the Passover about? Passover is about Israel is enslaved to another nation that's defiled by other gods. God in his mercy came and waged war on that other nation and those other gods, culminating in striking down the firstborn of that other nation. And, the, um, and to, to kind of highlight that, that the climactic moment in the war of God against these other nations, against this other nation, Egypt, and against their gods, Israel came together and celebrated a meal and were marked by blood, blood of the Passover lamb. It'll be a big deal for us in a couple of weeks as we look at John, a major theme for John. So they would celebrate this meal. After God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, Israel is set free. God comes to dwell with them. He gives, instructs them according to the law. He baptizes them in the Red Sea, um, and he brings them up out of the other side, giving him giving them his law, um, giving them his presence, giving them instructions on how they ought to worship and approach him. So what do I mean by saying that the Passover was about anticipating, hoping for, longing for the second Passover? Well, Israel would come together, every Jerusalem, um, still in bondage to Rome. And so almost every time Passover is celebrated, during this 20-year period, some form of problems would arise. In fact, including um, several years right before Jesus, riots in which people were killed. Um, they would come together hoping for, longing for, waiting for the day that God would raise up a Messiah, raise up a king, raise up the son of David, who would then lead them in a revolt against Rome and establish the kingdom of God. In other words, Passover is about coming the kingdom of God. You have Jesus, all kinds of rumors about Jesus, all kinds of stories about Jesus. Thousands of people have followed Jesus around. Now coming to Jerusalem, the one declared to be the son of David, the one declared to be son of man, coming to Jerusalem, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God at Passover. See it? Powder keg got it, right? Okay. Second thing to keep in mind. We've talked about this in the past, um, that Judea down south, the land around Jerusalem and Galilee are two very, very different places. In Galilee, you have largely kind of an entrepreneurial economy, um, an economy that's all about development and growth, tons of new money coming into Galilee, um, and, uh, and a general persuasion towards the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees are in the gospel stories. And the Pharisees are the ones um, really working for, pushing for, calling for um, Israel to become more pure and holy in its obedience to the law in order that the kingdom of God might come and the Romans might be killed. In Judea, you have a totally different economy there. You have an economy that's, little, um, that's built largely on, um, on, on power plays, 
So you have kind of the established order in Jerusalem. Um, they're all in bed with the Romans. Um, and, and you have them uh, manipulating people, manipulating wealth, raising taxes, using taxes to generate wealth um, for a very, very select few um, who are deeply compromised with Rome. And that power, um, that center of power was in Jerusalem. Um, and that whole crowd leaned heavily on the Sadducees, and the chief priests, and the temple authorities. And none of these people liked each other. Um, and yet, all the Galileans had to come down to Jerusalem and to Judea during the Passover to celebrate this meal. And so at the beginning of the week, you have a crowd outside of Jerusalem here in chapter 11 singing and declaring, here comes the son of David. Here comes the king. Here comes the one who, who, who comes bearing the name of God. I'm citing Psalm 118, which is a promise of uh, a messianic promise, a promise of the coming king, the coming son of David who would rule and establish the kingdom of God. So you have loud enthusiasm from people who are having to stay outside of the city, who are likely Galileans. And then once you get into the city, um, you have an immediate challenge coming to Jesus at the end of chapter 11, which we're not going to get into today. I'm um, coming from the, kind of the, the Jerusalem power center. So you have an immediate conflict happening right at the center of this. Um, and right in the middle of it is Jesus um, upsetting everybody. So that's the context. Giant crowd. So next week, when you show up, you're going to see what feels like a giant crowd of relatively short people. They are going to be extended with a palm branch. They could whack you in the face. But when you walk in and you see this relatively small group of people, both small in stature and small in numbers, um, you should not imagine that, that what happens in Mark chapter 11 is really anything like what you're going to experience except for the song that will be sung and the palm branches that will be waved. Although I don't think people whacked Jesus in the face with the palm branches. Not what you would do. But you shouldn't, you, you should imagine a massive crowd. A massive crowd singing. Singing about the coming king, coming son of David, the coming of Yahweh's salvation, the coming of God to conquer um, the enemies of God's people, um, the, the, the song um, and, and the shouting and the riding of a donkey. All of it is shouting to us one central message. Here comes the king. Here comes the promised one. Here comes the one we've anticipated and longed for and hoped for. And there are tens of thousands of people. So just think raw noise, shouting, singing, declaring, here's the king. Here he comes. So we have King declared to us explicitly in the text by the reference to Psalm 118. The fact that he's riding on a colt. By the way, I've tried many of time to go up to people, take their car, telling them that the Lord has need of it. They never give me their car. But we have the coming of the King. So now the second question, and the quick, rapid eating of the Mark and Sandwich. We're running out of time. Question is, what does this king do? And, and we need to ask that question because everybody going into the temple knew exactly what the king would do. And he didn't do it. Everybody shouting, tens of thousands of people waving palm branches, 
marching with Jesus into the temple knew exactly, absolutely, with absolute certainty, exactly what the king, the Messiah, the son of David would do when he established the kingdom of God at Passover in the temple. They all knew exactly. If you ask them what's going to look like, they might know, know exactly the tactics involved, but they knew what it would look like. What it would look like is a, a mass armed rebellion to disarm the Romans, slaughter them. Um, the Galileans were probably expecting that Jesus is going to step into the temple, drag um, the Sadducees and the chief priests um, and this wicked, corrupt power center, drag them out, kill them as well, and then, the, then King David would be enthroned, the Messiah would be enthroned, and he would rule forever. Now, Jesus is going into the temple with tens of thousands of people ready to see that happen. This is why our kind of nice, squishy images of Jesus just don't do it. Don't, don't feel the tension, the excitement, the intrigue of this moment. Can you imagine it? I mean, Jesus just points. Swords drawn, rebellion, Jesus enthroned. But he doesn't. Walks in. Text tells us in verse 11, he looks around at everything. The language of inspection. He inspects the temple. He looks to see what's happening. Then he leaves because it's late. And the sandwich. He's coming from Bethany. Going back to Jerusalem, going back to the temple, he sees a fig tree in the distance. Couldn't find anything on it. No figs. Why? It wasn't time for figs. Verse 14. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Remember how sandwiches work in Mark. The outside tells you what the inside's all about. We have this story of the fig tree. Jesus pronounces a word of judgment saying, no one will eat from you ever again. The result, given to us in verse 20. Next day, they're passing by that same fig tree and it's withered away to its roots. It's dead. Peter points it out. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. What's the bread in this story? Jesus is going back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem and the temple that he just inspected. He's going back to Jerusalem, a temple, by the way, which was designed on the outside to look like a fruit tree garden, a vineyard, a place where you could go and eat fruit. It was on purpose. See, the, the temple was meant to be a place where the nations would be fed. The people of God would be nourished and find life. So you had entwined in the whole design and architecture of the temple and the temple courts, everything designed to look like trees and fruit trees and grapevines. So Jesus, on his way to that building, that fruit tree temple, passes by fruit tree. It's bearing no fruit. And he proclaims over that fruit tree that's bearing no fruit. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he goes into the temple. And, and here's a story that if you've been around the church, you've, you've probably filled it with kind of all kinds of meaning. Like we, we um, I think in past times and even in our day, and we get really anxious when Jesus acts crazy. So we come up with some justifiable explanation that we like. So you maybe have heard like, well, he's really mad because these people are cheating people. So he's, that's what he's going after. That's some of what he's going after. I actually think he's doing something much, much larger in these verses. Comes in and he flips over tables 
flips over the seats of those who sold pigeons. And here's an interesting verse. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. A couple things you need to know. If you were traveling from Galilee or anywhere else in the Mediterranean to go to Jerusalem in order to eat the fruit of this of the worship of Yahweh, um, you usually didn't carry your goat with you or bring your pigeons with you um, to sacrifice. You would go to the temple, and part of the mechanism, the way that the temple worked, the way that worship worked in the temple, is you had to go to the temple, you had to pay for an animal, so you didn't want to travel with it all the way from, say, Corinth or Athens or Rome or even... Um, near the Sea of Galilee. Like you went there, you bought an animal, and then you went and you brought your offerings to God, and they were sacrificed. And, and it was actually a very convenient system. They had the animals that would kind of meet the requirements of being offered as sacrifices, and so you'd go, um, you'd pay, get your animal, carry your animal through the temple courts um, to where the offerings were to be offered, and a priest would kill the animal, and that was you bringing worship into the presence of Yahweh and delighting in eating and receiving the fruit of um, what it meant to be the people of God in the presence of God, offering these temples. So what Jesus is doing here, I think, yes, is there, um, is there financial corruption going on in this text? Absolutely. I think he's, he's aiming at it, but there's something else much bigger going on. Worship stops when he does this. Doesn't allow anyone to carry their offerings into and before the presence of God to be brought to him. By the way, in those offerings, that was the means by which, as the animal would be sacrificed and burned, um, the, 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 the typology there, what's actually happening there is... Um, in that animal being burned, you ascended, you personally ascended into the presence of God. Jesus comes in and he flips tables and he fashions a whip and he wouldn't allow anyone to go and worship God there any longer. So who is he? He's the son of David. He's the king. He's the Lord come to establish the kingdom of God. What does he do? He does what only God does. Pronounces and enacts judgment on the temple courts. He declares, no one will ever eat from you again. This trampling of my name, this belittling of my worth, this manipulation of people financially, um, this evil that stands at the center, um, I will put an absolute end to it. Um, and, and I don't want us to get derailed down that trail. I want us to come back to the central point of who is Jesus and what does he do? He doesn't just come as a king. He comes as God himself. He comes to rule, he comes to bring his kingdom, he comes to bring judgment. It's interesting, um, Jesus, in response to Peter's uh, observation about the withered tree, it's fascinating, it says to this verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. Now it's interesting, if he's coming from Bethany, um, he's uh, coming from, he's stepping down into a valley that sits uh, just, just, just across from um, the city of Jerusalem, which sits on a mountain. Um, the temple itself sits on Mount Zion. And so if, if you think about it, uh, they, they, um, as they're, um, they're sitting at Bethany, they're looking across at a mountain that has the city and has the temple. Um, so, so when he says mountain here, he's not talking about like Mount Evans. Um, he's talking about that mountain, that temple, that place where the worship of God had been corrupted, um, that place where people were not coming to, to, to worship. Ultimately, um, the, the, the word of judgment comes in Mark again and again and again because people refuse to worship Jesus. They refuse to see in him who he is. Um, they're, they're absolutely oblivious to who he is. Um, and so he says, whoever says to, um, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, and thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
And you call down the judgment of God to lay waste to that which defiles his name, to that which refuses to acknowledge him and to worship him. It will come to pass. Here is God Almighty coming and promising judgment is coming. I love what he does next. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, so you find yourself in this moment, praying for judgment. When you find yourself there, standing in prayer, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Judgment is coming. It is absolutely coming. And you should tremble before it. But don't be mistaken. You need mercy. So who is Jesus? He is the king who is God. Who does Mark want us to see? This king who comes to establish the kingdom of God is Yahweh himself come to bring judgment on all wickedness, all rebellion, all false worship, all presumed righteousness, here is God. He comes to establish goodness and mercy and righteousness to lay waste that all that rebels against him. Let's pray. So Jesus, we acknowledge and declare that you are king. You are the king of David. You are the one that we long for, we hope for. And yet, God, as we long for you, as we sing of your coming, pray that we would not be naive to think you come to fulfill our agenda, that you come to kind of put a a rubber stamp on who we are and who we think we are who we think you should be, but God, you come as you are, as Lord and King, and our commission is to receive you gladly and to bend our knee in worship. Jesus, we confess that you alone are God, the God who comes to save, the God who comes to rescue, but also the God who comes to judge, to throw mountains, places of power and authority into the sea. So God, save us from human pretension and human rebellion. Thinking much too highly of ourselves, but God, may we know and love and treasure mercy. Receive it. Now bless us as we come to receive this meal, this meal you graciously provide. This meal that is provided for us because you have cleansed us, you have washed us, you have called us to yourself. And you've saved us. In your name we pray, amen.